0: Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is the first episode of the podcast since our website redesign, which included moving to a new host and content management system. Our podcast page has a new look, which works now with modern browsers that have dropped support for XML rendering. I encourage you to check out the changes at kohlhadash.com. If you're in the Chicagoland area and have gotten used to coming to Heller for Shabbat services, We've also moved to the North Shore Unitarian Church for most events. Please check our website and calendar for upcoming events. This episode is the first in a series of adult education discussions about the various denominations of Judaism, in which Rabbi Shalom discusses Orthodox Judaism.
1: what we'll be doing today is beginning our exploration with um, a discussion of Orthodox Judaism. But I'll point out that actually chronologically, we should be starting with reform. And you think that's kind of odd, because you think reform is new. But actually, the idea of Jewish denominations, even the label orthodox, is only a modern phenomenon. Um, The same is true in uh, Christianity. If you were in Europe, uh, in Western Europe, and you were involved in the church before Martin Luther, you would have just called it the church. You wouldn't have called it Catholic. Catholic, like the word orthodox, is a response to some outside change or provocation. Um, and the word orthodox itself um, is obviously a Latin-based word. It comes from two roots. Ortho, like orthodontist, or orthopedic, is correct. And dox is in doctrine. Any movement that labels itself orthodox is saying we are right. And by implication, everyone else out there that we're not going to talk about is wrong. Uh, But you didn't need that uh, pre-modern life, Um, and in fact, some of the fanaticism of varieties of modern orthodoxy, or orthodoxy today, let's say, because modern orthodoxy is actually a variety of orthodoxy, contemporary orthodox expressions, some of them are very fanatically anti-modern or uh, anti-diversity in a way that wouldn't have applied in the pre-modern period because it simply wasn't... Um, a feature of uh, Jewish life at the time. So I thought what we would do to start is, because my guess is all of you know at least something about Orthodox Judaism, is let's brainstorm some concepts, symbols, ideas that uh, we sort of word associate with Orthodox, and then we'll uh, go through and see where they come from and how they fit together. Okay, so what are some things that come to mind when you think Orthodox Jew or Orthodox Judaism? Oh, sure. Okay, Kolan, <laughs> <Brooklyn. laughs> kosher. That's what I was
0: thinking, I was not all food.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Mikva. Mikva? No. okay. Literal <laughs> interpretation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Compulsive. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: was, uh, OCD, all right, what else? We'll put the D in frenzy. Um, okay,
1: uh, okay, I was trying to think of a short word for yeah, non-egalitarian. but that's right. not a short E-Rub. word. Anyway, so there's no way to say that. Non-egalitarian. I recall, oh, sorry. Eruv. Oh, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Eruv or Shabbat rules. About work, okay. I recall chanting from when I was a kid and went to a few services. I'm not sure that's accurate. Sure. Chanting services. Anything else? Mm-hmm. It tend to be very close to society. Ah, okay.
0: I don't know. What Insulated. It
1: is. Okay.
0: I don't know what the name is of that thing around the neighborhood. The
1: that's, the, that's the area. That's oh, the that is. The one. Oh, the string. The
0: string. Yeah.
1: Anything else? Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, you know, separating um, uh, mid, when minute, ah, minute limit. I believe segregation. Okay. Um, well, now we but I don't know how old that is. Okay, I'll, I'll put the word.
0: This is a sort of
1: a Yiddish slash Hebrew word. Lachmir means extra strict that you're strict and then an extra strict and an extra strict and what's happened in the last couple decades has been uh, people have become even more strict than they used to be um, in response to what they see as changes going on in the outside world they need to make the barriers higher and higher the old line is that you put a fence around the Torah so for example if you're keeping kosher dietary laws don't go into a kosher restaurant I'm sorry don't go into a non-kosher restaurant because why would you be in there, if not to eat. Someone might see you there. Is one problem. But the other problem is, why why get even close to something that could be a violation? So it's also the rationale given in some places for why you don't use musical instruments on Shabbat. The instrument itself isn't the problem, but if it broke, you would be tempted to fix it. And fixing it is breaking the rule. So you make a barrier around the uh, violation. So the idea of having this strict rule on top of rule is to make an even uh Wider uh, space between the violation and where you are in your life. Now, one thing we didn't talk about that didn't come up yet is a word that's very important to understand um, Orthodox Judaism in its conception. Uh, There's two related terms. One is mitzvah and the other is halakha. I'll explain what each of those are. We think of the word mitzvah in sort of its Yiddish inflection as good deed, Mm -hmm. did a mitzvah. But originally, the root of mitzvah is savah, which means command. It literally means commandment. Um, And the the sense is that you have been commanded, and not just by the past, and not just by your elected representatives, but you've been commanded (laughs) by God to do certain things and to not do other things. There are what are called positive commandments, you should do something. You should eat matzah on Passover. You should say certain prayers. And uh, you have been commanded not to do certain things. Do not eat this food. Uh, do not bear false witness, and so on. And the basic unit of observance in rabbinic uh, Judaism, in orthodox Judaism, is fulfilling mitzvahs, or they'll sometimes say shomer mitzvah, keeping the, the, the commandments. So a lot of these rules that we discuss, whether it's kosher laws, or putting on tefillin, or going to the mikveh, when someone is impure. These all relate to fulfilling commandments, that you should be pure, that you should keep away from impurity. Those are all related to um, the idea of commandment. Now, this might also relate a little bit to the obsessive compulsive side, because if you believe that God has told you how to do absolutely everything and wants you to do it absolutely right, then you're going to spend a lot of time finding out absolutely exactly how things are supposed to be done. So as one example, there was a Talmudic debate over which shoe you should put on first. (laughs) Should <laughs> You put on the right shoe first or the left shoe first. And the resolution was what you should do is slip on one and then the other, but then you tie the opposite. And then So you slip on your right and then slip on the left and then tie the left and then tie the right. So you sort of honor both sides of it. But the whole question of who cares what shoe you put on first, our perspective on it is it's a bit OCD. But if you believe that the god of the universe who is keeping track and keeping score all the time whether you're following the rules, gave you rules for how to do those things, then you would want to fulfill them. And the other thing to keep in mind is that from the orthodox perspective, mitzvot, which is the plural, or mitzvahs in the Yiddish inflection, um, are not only ritual things like prayer or kosher laws or purity laws. Mitzvot include ethical duties, just like bearing false witness, uh, not cheating people with false weights and measures, uh, loving your neighbors yourself. Those all count as commandments. Um, as well as ritual things. They wouldn't make this distinction that the reform and other more modern movements have made between ethical laws and ritual laws. From the Orthodox perspective, they're all commandments, and you do them because they are commanded. You don't do it because of any benefit you might get out of it. One of the analogies we have to resist is to say that, well, they're just following orders. They're just doing it because they've been told to. Um, Their perspective is, if the authority who is making the commandment is a good authority, which by definition their God is, then you do what your Father in Heaven tells you to do. Uh, And in general, it doesn't wind up with terrible results, but occasionally when it comes to gender issues, for example, we would say the results are problematic. Now, this whole system of mitzvot commandment is called halacha. Halacha is from the root halach, which means to walk. So it means, like, the path. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you're familiar with Sharia law in Muslim practice, it also means the path. Um, The Tao is the path. So it's not unusual in religious traditions to have a path. The idea is the halakha tells you how to do Jewish life. It's the collection of all the laws. And the role of the rabbi is a lot less a pastoral ceremonial role than it is the judge, the one who tells you what the halakha, what the law is. So is this dish still kosher if I dropped it in, in the wrong place? Um, what do I have to do to re-kosher it, or is it not re-kosherable? That's what you would go to the rabbi for, for a judgment on Jewish law. Um, in fact, the, the two questions that are asked when a rabbi is ordained traditionally is, uh, can he teach? Yoreh? Yoreh, he can teach. Yadin, can he judge? Yadin, he can judge. Because the judgment, the law part of it is a very important part of what the rabbi is supposed to do. In fact, a group of three rabbis together make what's called a Beit Din, literally a court of judgment, or a house of judgment. Um, It was a rabbinic court. Uh, So the rabbis were, in in essence, judges of the law and the legal expert for the community of how to fulfill uh, the will from heaven. Now, yes, question? Um, Among the ultra-orthodox, they have all these different Varieties, I guess, different mm-hmm. hats, different this, different that. What, what, what makes them different? Um, what exactly is it? Okay, so um, some of it is a question of how strict they are, some of it is the question of where the community comes from. So, for example, there's a whole series of Hasidic communities, we'll talk about Hasidic Judaism a little bit later, um, that are from different cities. So, there's the Belcher Hasidim who are from Belts and the uh, Satmar Hasidim who are from Satumare in Hungary. And actually, there is a town called Lubavitch in mm. Poland, Lithuania, uh, from which the uh, Lubavitcher um, community comes. So, some of it is geographic, but it's also the style of Ritual and practice. The uh, Chabad Lubavitchers have a particular style. The Satmars have a different style. Whether it's, as you say, hats or clothing or how strict they are in certain performances, and of course they hate each other with a white hot passion. Because so, anyone, who's very, so. anyone who's very close to you is the one you have to differentiate and say that they're they're so terrible. Oh, holier than now Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but there's even some who have evolved into a kind of modern orthodoxy. Uh, where, for example, they wear modern clothing, shave their face. Um, women don't have to be as strictly uh, covered mm-hmm. or shave their heads when they get married as might be the case in the most Orthodox settings. Um, so, but they would still call themselves Orthodox. They just are modern Orthodox. If you think of the um, a cappella group, the Maccabees, which you may have seen some of their web videos, mm-hmm. they're modern Orthodox. Uh, it's the, actually the Yeshiva University male a cappella choir, that's mm-hmm. the, uh, the group. Um, and Yeshiva University is sort of the flagship institution of modern orthodoxy where you can learn science, modern history, uh, modern philosophy, and yet still are committed to a lifestyle of following all these mitzvot, all the uh, the Holocaust. Yes? So this might not be appropriate now. Maybe we'll
0: get mm-hmm. to it. But so I'm invited to Shabbat dinner at a modern orthodox rabbi's house. Yes. And I have no idea what to expect. So maybe we'll get to <laughs>
1: Maybe you tell me Sure. I mean, uh in general what you'll yes. find is like they won't be no, they won't be flipping on <laughs> and off lights, they won't be serving not kosher food, right? Yeah. But they won't make you cover your head coming into the room. Can I
0: wear uh,
1: hands? Yes. Yes. Can uh, <laughs> Um, it's we Okay, <laughs> so there's even, believe it or not, there's even flavors within modern orthodoxy. Yeah. So in New York, there are actually two modern orthodox rabbinic seminaries. One is called Yeshiva Universities, or el Seminary, and the other is called Yeshiva Chovevei Torah, which is a modern orthodox offshoot of uh, Yeshiva University because they felt Yeshiva University was becoming too mocked or too strict. So I noticed recently, I watched the uh, most recent Maccabees video uh, called Shine, which is their uh, new Hanukkah one. I mean, it's very nice. It's promoting uh, registering for the bone marrow registry, so you can get matches for leukemia treatments treatments, whatever. Um, but I noticed that all the women in that have long skirts. They don't have long sleeves necessarily. Their shoulders are covered, but they all have long skirts. And it occurred to me that I have a friend who's a member of a modern Orthodox synagogue on the north side of Chicago. Um, but he and his wife don't do that at all. Um, they had a party with a lot of their friends, including a song leader from the uh, congregation where they're members, and none of the women were wearing skirts. So you can still call yourself Orthodox and not wear a skirt, uh, but others would say, well, maybe it's better just to, to do that. Um, and it just depends on which style of modern Orthodox. This is the challenge. It's the same thing with a Reform congregation, by the way. You can walk into a Reform congregation, and who knows what you're going to get um, between classical reforms from the 1950s and Sort of modern reformative, uh, reform conservative hybrid that you'll see in some other communities. Um, so, in any case, um, when we talk about the conception of where this law comes from, you know, I mentioned it wasn't from elected representatives designing a constitution. The claim is it goes back to a moment in Jewish history, which is the uh, the experience of meeting God at Mount Sinai. Now, what you hear in some places is the idea that the the Jews were given the 10 commandments in Mount Sinai. Um, But actually, from an orthodox perspective, they weren't given 10 commandments. They were given 613 (laughs) (laughs) commandments, not (laughs) 15. That's another version. Um, They were given 613 commandments, um, which is sometimes referred to as tariag, which is from the Hebrew uh, using letters for numbers to do the math. What they received at Sinai were actually two bodies of teaching. One is what's called the written Torah. That's the five books that we have today. The other is what's called the oral Torah. And this is the body of interpretations, outside commentaries, and even my grandpa heard it from his grandpa, heard it from his grandpa, teachings that go back to Mount Sinai. So sometimes they'll say, where in the Torah is it commanded to separate milk from meat, let's say? And sometimes they find a source text. Whether it's a good source text or not, the goal is to hook it somewhere. Mm -hmm. So the source text on the milk and meat separation for kosher laws is, you should not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And people said, well, chicken doesn't have milk. (laughs) Why does that count as meat? Um, and uh, others uh, accepted the, the, the dominant interpretation on that, uh, to the uh, detriment of chicken Parmesan lovers everywhere. <laughs> um, the, um, so the idea was that sometimes you can find a proof text that goes back to the written Torah, but sometimes you can't. <clears throat> like lighting Shabbat candles, one of those preeminent symbols of traditional Jewish life. There is nothing in the Torah anywhere that says, light candles at the beginning of Shabbat. So what they'll say is, well, that's a halacha Lemoshemi Sinai, This is a law that goes back to Moses on Sinai. It's just we've been doing it forever, and we know it's a law that goes back. You know, Once it gets beyond like your grandfather's grandfather, it might as well go back all the way, because who knows? Now, we, with a more historical mindset, would say that it's no guarantee it goes back all the way. In fact, all the way, it might not have even been there. But this concept of a written Torah and an oral Torah creates an opening for some modification or creativity but also some interesting uh, challenges that come up. So, for example, the traditional blessing for lighting Hanukkah candles is thank you God who commanded us to light the Hanukkah candles. Except in the written Torah there's nothing about Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. Because the written Torah ends with Moses overlooking the promised land. The Maccabees are not for another uh, thousand years at least. So what's their proof text there? Where did he command us? The answer is you will appoint sages, and they will tell you what to do. In other words, we, the rabbis, occasionally have the right to tell you that God commanded you through us. Okay, It's the transitive power of commandment. We are, in effect, the authorized interpreters, the authorized represent. We are the Supreme Court to interpret this text. There's a famous story called The Ovens of Achnai, where there's a debate over whether a particular oven is kosher or not. And uh, one rabbi asserts that it is not kosher when all the other rabbis say it's okay. And he brings all kinds of miracles to prove his point. He makes a tree fly 400 yards, and he makes the walls of the study house shake. And finally, a voice from heaven comes down and confirms that, indeed, Rabbi Eliezer is correct. But another rabbi stands up and rebukes the voice from heaven (laughs) and says, the Torah is not in heaven. In other words, we have to make decisions based on the law. We don't rely on miracles. We don't rely on... uh, on voices from heaven, we have to rely on what we can interpret from this text that you've given them. You gave us the law, now let us work with it. And in an epilogue to the story, um, Elijah shows up many years later, and someone asks him what did God do at that point when Rabbi Joshua rebuked the voice from heaven? And the answer is, well, God laughed. And he said, my children have defeated me. You know, when your kids come up with a way to work the rules such that they get to do what they want to do, and it wasn't what you intended, but part of you is annoyed, and part of you is impressed. Uh, That's sort of the dynamic in that story. Um, So the idea was that the Torah was given at Sinai, and now we, we, the rabbis, are the authorized interpreters of this body of law. And what we're doing, in some ways, is an articulation, an expansion of the oral Torah. So if you have the written Torah, which is originally the first five books, you also have this body of oral Torah, which is sometimes specific teachings, sometimes ways of interpreting the written Torah, and sometimes the process of reasoning in response to things in the written Torah. So sometimes the Torah may contradict itself. For example, it says, honor your mother and father. But what if they're thieves? And you're not supposed to steal. And you're not supposed to stand idly by while your brother's committing sin. You're supposed to intervene. Well, so you have to work out how you um, combine these uh, conflicts or conjunctions of duty. Um, The other challenge that comes up is application to new circumstances. Obviously, light switches weren't around when this is given, so how do we interpret that in a way that makes sense? Uh, My father once was visiting his brother who lives in an Orthodox Jewish community in uh, Brooklyn, and he wanted to go out for a walk on Saturday, and it was raining, so he took an umbrella. And his brother said, you can't use an umbrella on Shabbat. My dad said, why not? Well, the rabbis have said it's like building a house my father said do you think it's like building a house and his brother said well it's not for me to think the rabbis have said that that's what it is and they know more than I do now there's part of us that reacts very negatively to that what do you mean you don't think on the other hand there are plenty of times we do rely on authorities you know I have not done original research into the Big Bang or into how effective how chemotherapy is effective I mean we can't do all of the seeking of knowledge Ourselves, we have to rely on authorities from time to time. In this case, their authorities are the rabbis who claim this pedigree going back to the giving of this oral Torah on Mount Sinai. So that's the origin of their claim to authority. Now, we have plenty of reasons to think that this body of forbidding teaching actually did not go back to any kind of written revelation on Sinai um, because, first of all, a lot of the other sources in the Bible make no reference to it at all. Um, and secondly... Uh, because there are communities that became separated from Rabbinic Judaism at different times that don't reflect the teachings of the oral Torah. So you have the Ethiopian Jews, or the Yemeni Jews for a long time, who didn't seem to show any knowledge of Rabbinic teaching, where if it had gone back to Sinai, they would have had it. right? It would have been sort of a dual inheritance. Instead, they only have the written version. So uh, there's a lot of suggestions that it was created by rabbis many years later. And it evolved over time. You know, Think of it like the Supreme Court. Right? It says, thou shalt not murder in the Ten Commandments. But what does that mean? What counts as murder? And when? In what circumstances? Are there times you're allowed to commit murder to save someone else's life? Okay. So that's, again, the interpretive process of the rabbis. And they came up with a couple of books to collect their teachings. The first is something called the Mishnah. That was written around the year, uh, that was compiled, rather, around the year 200, of the common era, but it includes teachings from a couple hundred years before that. And then, of course, they couldn't stop talking, because they had new circumstances to respond to, or new questions were raised, or if I had been there, I might have said it differently. And so what evolved around the Mishnah as a commentary, (coughs) literally it means completion, it's called the Gemara. And if you have a book that has the Mishnah text, and then the Gemara commentary around it, That's called the Talmud. So in essence, what the Talmud is is a textbook of Jewish law. But it's not just a list. Later generations would create these lists of laws. They're called codes. So Maimonides wrote a code, and Gersonides wrote a code. Um, But the Talmud is actually a record of the discussions. It's like if they took transcripts of the Supreme Court deliberations Mm -hmm. or the committee hearings, That's what the Talmud is. So you can get the law out of it, but not automatically. You have to sort of go through the discussions. If there's two rabbis who disagree, you have to know which one is more authoritative. Because otherwise, it looks like both teachings are there. But we need to know what the actual answer is. So for example, when the House of Hillel and the House of Shammai have a disagreement, it almost always goes with the House of Hillel. So they debated, for example, should you light eight Hanukkah candles and then go down to one, or should you light one and go up to eight? Hillel said, go up. Shammai said, go down. We go up. Um, so that's one example of the, the conflict of rabbinic authority. You just need to know which one's when. Um, and the Talmud is the, the primary source that people would turn to when they are looking for the reasoning behind the halakha. Now, of course, there are commentaries and commentaries on commentaries. If you look at a modern Talmud page, you'll have a Mishnah text and a Gemara text. and then commentaries over here and commentaries over here and commentaries over here. You have Rashi's commentary from the 1100s and Maimonides' commentary from the 1200s and Rashi's descendants commentaries and there's all kinds of Mm -hmm. citations to this. Um, And again, it's trying to explain what is the law? What are we supposed to do? Uh, Not necessarily is the theoretical framework of this true, but rather is it, what are we supposed to do? Uh, What what is the top list? What What is the behavioral uh, consequence. Is this a finite book, or does it continue to be written? Well, the Babylonian Talmud is done. It was compiled around the year 600 of the Common Era. Um, and there's actually there were actually two Talmuds. There was what was called the Palestinian Talmud, or in Hebrew, the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, um, that was developed in the land of Israel. The commentaries of the rabbinic academies there. And then the Babylonian Talmud was done in Baghdad, and that was compiled around the year 600 or 700 of the Common Era. The, the Babylonian is the more authoritative one. Um, the Talmud is done. But the commentaries on the Talmud and the further explorations of the law continue even to this day, which is why you'll have people adding on layers to women's clothing or changing how strict you have to be in terms of preparing masa or kosher certification, those kind of things. But there's no, it's not written down anywhere. It's sort of within each set. uh, Well, this uh, is the, see, here's the challenge. So some sources are accepted by everybody. So the Talmud, accepted by everybody. Maimonides' code, accepted by just about everybody. Uh, Rashi accepted by everybody, these are all medieval. Once you get into the early modern period, then each Hasidic rabbi begins to have his own teachings. Um, There are certain uh, Gedolim, which means the great ones, the sages of their age, who have authoritative teachings that everybody follows, or that everybody at least studies, even if they disagree with a piece here or there. Um, Again, think about it like Supreme Court justices, right? You can go back historically, and some people love Brandeis, and some people love uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and other people don't like the fact that Oliver Wendell Holmes was a eugenicist and was not in fa- was in favor of uh, banning uh, the reproduction of certain peoples, mm-hmm. even though he was a great justice in other respects. So um, this is this is the same approach when it comes to looking at uh, who's making the law and how it's being interpreted. But wouldn't have different books. Well, sure, but each of they them might do. Right. <coughs> the right, but that doesn't necessarily make it into the Talmud itself. Right. You know, like Blackstone's Law is going to be Blackstone's Law, even if you interpret it this way and someone else is going another way. The Talmud is the Talmud. That's done. Um, it's the commentaries on the Talmud, their interpretations of the Talmud that have evolved over... Okay. Well, right. I mean, now even there was a new version of the Talmud that just came out this, uh, over the last decade by a man named Dean Steinsault, where he's basically translated the Talmud into modern Hebrew. Because the Talmud itself is written in a combination of Hebrew and Aramaic, which was the daily language of the Jews who were writing it. Um, and a yeshiva book, or someone who's studying in a yeshiva, wouldn't necessarily be able to tease out the linguistic differences, because Aramaic is to Hebrew like French is to Spanish. It's very similar. Um, in fact, uh, the word Av in Hebrew uh, becomes Abba in Aramaic. And in fact, that's become the Hebrew word for daddy, uh, even though Av is like patriarch father. Um, some of the words have bled over one to the other. So Gemara is an Aramaic word, Mishnah is a Hebrew word, but they're close enough that you wouldn't tease out the linguistic differences. So this is the, the primary source, of the theoretical basis for Orthodox Judaism. Of course, as I mentioned, the, um, the concept of an orthodoxy uh, really only emerges in the modern period where you have challenges to this consensus of what you're supposed to be doing. The idea that there is a Jewish law that everyone follows, and that's it. Once people begin questioning that, that's when you get the reassertion of how strong um, one's belief and one's practice needs to be. Let me just see what else I didn't What what does dox mean? Dox is like doctrine, uh, belief. Okay. So as one example, um, you sometimes hear people say that Orthodox Judaism is really orthoprax Judaism, that is, It's what you do. It's following the commandments. It's following the law. And what you believe is eh, not as as important. That's from people who are trying to save the fact that they can't believe what they're told to believe, because there are plenty of statements of belief in orthodox practice. For example, there was a um, discussion in the Talmud of who has no share in the world to come. Well, already there's an implicit belief that there is a world to come. And a lot of people today have been so secularized I think Jews don't believe in an afterlife. In fact, in the Talmud and Orthodox Judaism, there is absolutely an afterlife. And there's someone who's keeping score. You know how you get in the afterlife? Lots of these. Because these are the good points that make up for the inevitable bad things that anyone will do. And someone is keeping score. He knows if you've been sleeping. He knows if you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So in this discussion of who has a share in the world to come, it says there are, all of Israel has a share in the world to come, and these are the ones that do not have a share in the world to come to everyone but, those who deny that the Torah is from heaven, and remember for them that isn't only the written Torah, it's the oral Torah. So when they say i study Torah, often they mean they're studying Talmud, they're studying oral Torah, it's not, there's not a line between the two. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's the one who denies the Torah from heaven. The one who denies that the resurrection of the dead is to be found in the Torah. I mean, it makes sense you shouldn't have a share in the life to come if you don't believe in a life to come. Uh, but also their point is that you don't believe in our interpretation of it. Because if you read the written Torah, there is no afterlife in the written Torah. It does not talk about it at all. Where it comes in is in rabbinic interpretations of the written Torah. So, in other words, what they're saying is, if you don't believe not only that the Torah was from heaven, but that our interpretation of the Torah has divine authority, then you also have no share. So that again reemphasizes the rabbinic status. And the third category is someone who is an api-chorus, which means a skeptic, a heretic, one who denies divine justice. In other words, we are we are pretty much uh, in that category in, uh, in most of the uh, key issues. Um, And then also, uh, Rabbi Akiva adds, anyone who reads the outside books. In other words, if you go off the the recommended reading list, then uh, you you might be in trouble. Okay, so now you get a sense of the theoretical basis, and I want to read one last text on that, and then we'll talk about some of the practical interpretations and the varieties of orthodoxy that are out there today. So Maimonides created what he called the 13 Principles of Faith. Each of them begins, anima amina, I believe, with perfect faith, right? It's part of the daily prayer service in Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And if anyone says to you, there's nothing you have to believe to be Orthodox, it's not true, because you're supposed to recite this, and you're supposed to be saying, I believe. There's also something called the amida, which is a standing prayer, uh, which has implicit, it's blessing God for doing things. But if you're doing that, you're implicitly saying, God does these things. So it is a statement of belief via praise. So here are examples of Maimonides' 13 principles. I believe with perfect faith that God is the creator and ruler of all things. He alone has made, does make, and will make all things. So this is, in some ways, a philosophic statement that there is a God who started everything and who is the only force that does it. It is a monotheistic statement, so no polytheism, and also there's a sense of a unity of God. We'll see that in number two. I believe with perfect faith that God is one. There is no unity that is in any way like his, he alone is our God. This is also a sort of anti-trinitarian statement right there's no other ways of talking about god there's only one not son and holy spirit i believe with perfect faith that god does not have a body physical concepts do not apply to him there is nothing whatsoever that resembles him at all <laughs> so again no embodiments as you have in christian thought mm-hmm. um, i believe with perfect faith that god is first and last this is the alpha and omega not jesus is the alpha and omega but god I believe with perfect faith it is only proper to pray to God when we not pray to anyone or anything else, no saints, no intermediaries. I believe with perfect faith the words, all the words of the prophets are true, that revelation is in fact accurate, and what we have is true. In fact, I believe with perfect faith the prophecy of Moses is absolutely true. He was the chief of all prophets, both before and after him. You don't know of any other prophet who's claimed... Who has that status claimed for him in another tradition? Muhammad. Yeah, Muhammad is described as the seal of the prophets. He was better than all. Well, they're saying the first is the best. Moses is the best. Because Muslims accept Moses as a prophet, just mm-hmm. not the most up-to-date prophet. Um, and uh, here's Maimonides' response to that. I believe with perfect faith, the entire Torah we now have is that which was given to Moses. So it's not by anyone else. I believe with perfect faith this Torah will not be changed. There will never be another given by God. No New Testaments, no Qurans, just this. I believe with perfect faith that God knows all of man's deeds and thoughts. Remember, he knows if you've been sleeping. I believe with perfect faith God rewards those who keep his commandments and punishes those who transgress him. So again, it's the commandments. Number one of which in Maimonides' list of commandments is believe in God and love God, and fear God, and obey God. Those are all part of his list of 613. Now, the irony about the 613 number, there's a couple of them. Um, One is that everyone agrees on the number, and no one agrees on what they are. But what that means is that they agree on the number without making a list, without, you know, they, they want to get to that number. So they make their list such that they wind up at 613. It's not like they're independently analyzing it, and might wind up at 610. No, they're always going to end up with 613, so they pick the number first. Um, The other interesting thing about that is that they're split between, again, positive and negative commandments. So the positive commandments are 248. They say corresponding to the parts of the body. I don't know what they count as a part. Um, And the other uh, part, can anyone do the math in their head, how many negative commandments? Anyone do the math? Sorry, you've been (laughs) distracted. Right. 365. 365, negative for For the days in the solar year. Okay. Obviously a lot more negative than positive. (laughs) Uh, More restrictions, more being careful and not doing things. Um, And as we'll see, this becomes an important concept when it comes to women's participation in uh, ritual life, which we'll come back to in a minute. Okay. Rabbi? yes, I'm sorry, when, two things, when was Maimonides That's around 1200. Okay, and, and where was the number of 613 you said? That's a rabbinic source that goes back a long time. The, the word Torah itself adds up to 611, and then the theory is that the first two of the Ten Commandments were sort of outside of that 611 because they were given verbally before the people, people said we can't handle it, write it all down for us. Um, so again, there's no clear, no one knows for sure, definitive, right? There's no index in the Torah scroll that says here's number one, here's number seventy-five. Doesn't do that. Now again, Maimonides makes his list, and other people make their lists, and they may or may not be consistent in all uh, all so the. They could have put them in bold, right? Or yeah. hyperlink uh, the the. Okay. Maimonides, uh,
0: the these statements sound more like a creed to um, as a reaction to. Living in Christian and Muslim societies and, and uh, crisis of identity than they do anything sure. else. Right.
1: Sure. I mean, you only create a creed when people are questioning. Right. <laughs> he, he he did. Did. Yeah. did. He, he was born in Spain, had to flee. Right. That's right. He also says for number 12 I believe the perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah. However long it takes, I will await his coming every day. Um, so the idea of a personal Messiah is a key part. This is part of that afterlife concept. And finally, I believe with perfect faith the dead will be brought back to life when God wills it to happen. There's actually some debate in uh, in the Talmud over whether they come back fully clothed or not. (laughs) Uh, in what state of decay it <laughs> was? a discussion of the body parts. Yes, that's right. What happens to the body parts? Of course, they're all supposed to be resurrected in the land of Israel. But what about people buried in Poland or other places? No, the theory is they roll in underground tunnels <laughs> to get there. And, but this is one of the rationales why they say you can't disturb graves at all. And you can't like, pave over old cemeteries or anything because I mean, it's sort of a little silly because you can resurrect Almost the dead, but you can't get through three feet of uh, asphalt. This is a little odd. Um, but the point is also a sign of respect and a sign of faith. You believe that this will happen. So it's very attractive for people to get buried in Jerusalem because they are first in line um, <laughs> for this resurrection. Uh, but Priority accents. What? Priority action. Priority accents. Right. Um, <laughs> the boxes. <laughs> but the space is
0: so limited.
1: It is. Why you that's why... I, it's it's the old economic law of supply and demand. So it's uh, more valued to be in the uh, in the, in the best spot. You cannot
0: be cremated,
1: and you can't be cremated because again, if you have faith that the body will be resurrected, you need the bones to get the flesh back on them to to move forward. I um, mean, we know even bones decompose at some point, but again, this is a scientific mindset, not uh, not exemplified by this perspective. Okay, so. Um, Let's talk a little bit now about how this gets applied to some of these concepts and also the varieties of orthodoxy that are out there. So I want to talk for a moment about these positive and negative commandments as it applies to women. In an orthodox setting, a woman is not allowed to do the Torah reading on behalf of the congregation. It's one of the reasons why you don't have women rabbis, except in the most liberal of the orth... There are a couple of, that call themselves orthodox communities that um, have uh, women serving in rabbinic capacities, but the vast majority of the orthodox world has not accepted that, the same thing with a bat mitzvah where the bat mitzvah girl would read from the Torah scroll on behalf of the whole congregation, it's not part of the main orthodox world Uh, it would be like supplementary maybe but even then maybe not Uh, the point is that for women they are not obligated to all of these commandments men have to follow all 613, women have to follow all the negative commandments and all the positive commandments that are not time specific Because who knows, if they're watching the kids, or dealing with the house, they might not be able to do it. I'm I'm articulating the the rationale that's given. I'm not um, celebrating it. But but the theory is is that uh, women are exempt from some of the positive commandments that are time-specific. It works out that many of those are some of the more important ones. Putting on the prayer boxes, that's time-specific. Saying the prayers at certain times, that's time-specific. Reading from a tortoise scroll. That's time-specific. Reading the Megillah, that's time-specific. So because they're exempt from those, they are able to do a few of them, like lighting Shabbat candles is time-specific. And that's one that's particularly identified with women lighting them. Um, But even so, the assumption is that women wouldn't necessarily do it. Um, There's also some rather obnoxious discussions that say, well, if you had a woman do the Torah reading, they would assume no man was smart enough to do the reading. And therefore, it would be a shame on the community. (laughs) <laughs> Again, I'm just articulating this perspective. Um, but the, the point is that this is why women are not able to do this because, and here's where the, the kicker comes in. If you're in a community and you have a Torah reading command, every man is supposed to read the Torah uh, three, to, three times a week. It would be anarchy if everyone were actually reading it out loud at the same time. right? So what you can do is you can have someone do it on your behalf, and you just say amen at the end, it's like you said it like a, a blessing for the meal or a ceremonial blessing, that kind of thing, too. However, the only person who can replace you in doing it is someone who is equally commanded to do it. You, know, you can only have a substitute who's at the same level of commandedness. So if a woman has volunteered to read a blessing, or to do, well, that's a choice, but it's not commandedness. And it's more powerful if it's been commanded to be done. So those time-specific things like reading the Megillah, reading the Torah scroll, are only done by men because only men can replace other men in doing it because only they are fully commanded to do it, even if women choose <coughs> to do it. Now in conservative Judaism, women are fully able to participate in all of those rituals because they can choose to assume the obligation of this commandedness, and then from a conservative perspective, that's okay. Then then it's of equal validity and you uh, can move forward. But that's not that wasn't that uh, way fifty years ago. No, the conservative movement evolved in that that respect. That's right. They didn't used to count women from minions or have women rabbis until the mid-80s. Okay, so you get a sense of how these commandments are applied. As it works out for women's life, of course, the most powerful public demonstrations of Jewish identity are the ones that they're exempt from, which in practical purpose means they're not allowed to do. Um, And even more problematic, um, they are in some cases uh, not only restricted from doing them, but Uh, there's a sense that they're not getting as many points as they could in the best possible way. Remember, the way you earn points is by doing commandments. Mm -hmm. And so what you'll see see in some of these more closed traditional settings is this idea that women earn points by helping men earn points. That is, the more fulfilling of commandments they facilitate for their husbands, the more uh, they're earning sort of uh, vicarious points, let's say. Uh, enabling points Um, so in some communities the men would study Torah all day and the woman would work find a way to earn a living because the more the man can study more he's fulfilling the commandment of studying the Torah the better it is for both of them because they are a a unit so to speak when it comes to um, getting points uh, for the family put it that way okay so you can see how this concept gets applied and how, again, we might have some uh, problems with it. Um, some of the other details that we highlighted, uh, to fill in are these prayer boxes, where you bind them on your hands and on a sign before your eyes, on your forehead. They uh, are actually a very literal reading of the text in Deuteronomy, where it says, you will take these words and bind them as a sign on your hands. So they take these words and bind them as a sign. I mean, I would say this more saying, these are really important. So. Focus on them, but they took it very little. The kosher laws, as I mentioned, there are a variety of interpretations of these because there's the milk and meat prohibition I mentioned earlier. There's also the ban on not just pork, by the way, but it's anything that, ha- that does not have both a cloven hoof and chew its cud. Uh, so a cow, for example, is a great example: cloven hoof, chews its cud. They mention a rabbit as another example where it has cud, but it doesn't have a cloven hoof; it has paws instead. Or the pig is the example of cloven hoof but doesn't chew cud, it's not a herbivore. But that's the key issue, you see. It's not about the cud, necessarily, like cud is so attractive. Um, <laughs> it's about eating meat, i.e. eating blood. There is a strong kosher prohibition on eating blood. So when you kill an animal, you're supposed to cut the neck in a way to drain as much blood as possible. Uh, and in fact, when you get the meat, you're supposed to salt it in a way to remove even more blood. If you are making eggs. You're supposed to break the eggs into a separate bowl to make sure there's no blood spot in the egg before you put it into the uh, general dish. Um, and, uh, and that's why the kosher slaughter role is important, but also you're not allowed to eat anything that itself is a carnivore, no predators. Right? Now, the exception are fish, because, of course, fish eat other fish all the time. Um, but fish are in a category that's not quite meat and not quite milk. It's called parve. Parv means intermediary. So, for example, um, vegetables are intermediary. You can't have cheese and meat, but you can have vegetables with a cheese dish or vegetables with a meat dish. It goes either way. Um, so why why can't you? Eat, so you can't eat rabbit because they're herbivores, right? Right, but they also don't have the cloven hook. and the law says cloven hook. Can you not eat um, medium rare? Steak, but the blood, I'm not being funny either. Well, then, you see, the meat itself, and the periods. meat itself would have to be kosher meat, uh-huh. and the kosher meat would have very little blood in it to begin with. Okay. Now, I don't know if you took a kosher steak and tried to make it mean a rare, what it would look like, okay. um, whether it be bloody or not. I My mean, guess is not so bad. Okay. Not in shellfish. Uh. Okay, so shellfish is another one where it says the only thing you're allowed to eat out of the water is something with fins and scales. In other words, an ordinary looking fish. <laughs> uh, all these weird crustacean catfish. things, forget it. Catfish. No. Wait, what are a a uh, Oh, catfish is, a scavenger. oh catfish is a scavenger. On yeah. On yeah. The, on on a lot of feeder.
0: No scavengers, no vultures. No eel, no yeah. squid. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. sure. don't have pins oh, yeah. and scales. scales.
1: Okay. Right. I mean, one of the, one of the theories no, of where this comes from, by the way, um, and this goes, I mean, these are rules in the Bible that the rabbis have then expanded on, but originally they go back to the even pre rabbinic um, The theory is that uh, it was actually sort of an economic boycott between the hill country Jews who were living up in the uh, higher ground around Jerusalem and the coastal Canaanites who were living closer to the ocean. So in a river you would have fish, but you wouldn't have lobster and eel and all these other random things. Um, in the same way uh, that the shepherds running around on the hilltops are not interested in settled agriculture, like pigs, and so they, the cattle they can move, sheep they can move, goats they can move; those are all fine, but the settled ones, like the pigs, are more problematic. Well, so, how, how
0: come um, a chicken, which is obviously has no hoof and whatever, um, and no milk, and <laughs> no milk, and it's. But it's not part because you can't, like you said, you
1: can't have it. Right. It's interpreted as meat. I mean, some of it is... But why
0: is it okay?
1: There's no hope. Well, okay. So now you're into the oral Torah. <coughs> so the rabbis, in their semi-infinite wisdom, um, decided that either it was so close when it's sitting there to looking like the other meat that you might get mixed up, or it's enough like the other meat that... It must be included in the same category. There's a whole series of discussions of why it tastes the like chicken. chicken. Yeah, right. <laughs> Is everything else, every other meat tastes like chicken. Um, it's been lumped into that category of, uh, of meat. Um, and of course, there's a whole series of other kosher laws when it comes to Passover. Because Passover says you will have no leavening found in your houses. So there's all kinds of rules of how the masa has to be prepared and what things are kosher for Passover and or not. You can't have any corn or corn-based products in the house. Um, and there's a split between the Sephardic Jews from the Middle East and the Ashkenazi Jews from Europe on what kind of uh, kosher for Passover laws there are. You can have rice and beans, for example, in Sephardic kosher mm-hmm. practice, but not in Ashkenazi kosher practice. Uh, they make their harosah different. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, differences of interpretation of how far you need to go. So at one example, uh, you may have heard a few years ago, there was a kosher slaughter plant in Iowa agro-processors oh, yeah. that was busted for immigration violations and working mistreatment and so on, and there were some people in the conservative world who were surprised and appalled. How could you call this kosher if people were being treated so poorly? But from the Orthodox perspective, where there's no distinction between the ritual and the ethical, they said, well, as long as the animals are being killed correctly, then right. that, that's yeah. the meat is about the meat, not about the people making the meat. <laughs> um, and uh, and so now there's been a push to be a kind of ethical kosher. Uh, standard, Hexer aesthetic is what they're calling it. Um, the Orthodox Union itself puts a kosher stamp, it's an O-U, if you see that symbol on Coca-Cola or other products, you'll see it. Um, but there are some who wouldn't even accept that, who want an extra higher standard than the Orthodox Union stamp. So you can go, again, stricter and stricter as you, as you choose. Sometimes you'll see in Hebrew the letters kosher. Yes, kosher <laughs> You. With a, with a circle around it, he means union of orthodox. That was the only one my mother would say, that one is okay. Just right, right. writing kosher doesn't <laughs> yet. <Yeah. laughs> so, you know, one of the other pieces with I don't want to get caught up in the kosher too much, but um, if you have a restaurant, you have to have someone who's appointed by the Council of Rabbis, who's called the Machiach, who supervises the kitchen to make sure you're not screwing up. He's sort of the. Uh, the, you know, you have, you have the Department of Health certification that comes in once in a while. The Department of Culture certification is on duty all the time. Mm-hmm. But what he does is he sits in the kitchen and reads a book. I mean, he doesn't do anything. His job is to supervise and make sure things are running culture uh, style. And if, if you don't agree to pay him to sit there to do that, then they'll remove your culture certification, and you've got to market to a different audience. Um, the, uh, the mikvah the mikvah goes back to the idea of uh, uh, menstrual purity and impurity that is described in the bible but again the rabbis have decreed at what time you're supposed to go and not and in terms of the results of the mikvah system where a man is not supposed to touch his wife when she's menstruating or within a week of that um, it concentrates sexual activity at the times of highest fertility and so that's one of the reasons why you get many many children in orthodox families because They're not allowed to be intimate in the periods when she's least fertile. And they're, in fact, required to be intimate in the periods when she is more fertile, in addition to the idea that there is a commandment to be fruitful and multiply. So um, uh, it's a conjoined uh, approach. We talked about a little bit of the OCD and the literal interpretation, the non-egalitarian we talked about as well. Uh, The idea of the Hebrew. So there's a whole series of laws of what you're allowed to do and not do on Shabbat. You're not allowed to light a fire. You're not allowed to cure a hive. You're not allowed to write two letters. You're not allowed to erase two letters. You're not allowed to uh, graft a plant together. There's all a series of laws, um, some of which are relevant today and some of which are not. Uh, you know, the lighting a fire, you might think, is something we don't do very often, except running a car would be lighting a fire. Um, it turns out, actually, that turning on a light switch, I think, is ruled out because it's completing a circuit as opposed to uh, something else. Um, but if you have a timer, turn it on. Ah. Well, this, there, there is actually a description in the Talmud where they said if you have a lamp, an oil lamp, and you take a bag and hang it over the lamp and you poke a hole in the bag so the oil drips down every few seconds onto the lamp, is that okay on Shabbat? And they said, sure, because you're not doing it. It's, it's running on its own. You can have the oven warm before Shabbat and then leave stuff in there. And if it continues to cook in there, then it's just running on its own. Um, This is a big distinction between the the early rabbis and another sect called the um, Karaites, who said that uh, they would only do what it says in the Bible, and they did Shabbat in the dark. They didn't let things keep running. They put everything out, so there were no fires burning at all on Shabbat. Whereas the rabbis said, if you have something running, you can let it keep running, or you can even come up with a mechanism so that it can run on its own. So this is where the timer's idea comes from. So, electric car, if we truly electric cars, they may be driving on Shabbat? No. No, <laughs> well, because it's not driving on its own. Now, keep well, in can mind. Well, you're completing a circuit, <clears throat> you're also traveling too far. There's a limit on how far you can travel. Now. Within the realm of the dental clause. Yeah, well, okay, so here's what the air roof is. So, there's all these rules of what you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. But, the theory was that if you had, let's say, four houses that were around a conjoined courtyard, Theoretically, you're not allowed to carry things from your house to someone else's house. That would count as work, going from a private to a public domain or between two private houses. (laughs) But if you could define that courtyard as sort of a shared living space among all the four houses, then you could, in fact, take things out into that courtyard and back. It would expand your possibility of what you could do. You could carry your keys around instead of having to wear them by pinning them on your clothing. So you could work around that. And so this concept of a shared courtyard got extended into the idea of this wire that represents a kind of shared space that uh, enables you to be more functional on Shabbat than you would otherwise. In fact, it was a big issue in New York after Hurricane Sandy when all the Eruvim were knocked down, and they had to get by with only what they could do uh, without the Eruv in terms of uh, functioning. Uh, But this is, again, one of those cases where you can see the distinction between conservative and orthodox Judaism. One of the major splits was in the 50s, where the conservative movement said, we'll allow you to drive on Shabbat if you drive to synagogue. Of course, it's possible to the police where you go when you leave the parking lot. But the, their point was, well, because people are living further away, we'll let you drive to go to synagogue. The orthodox response, if you live too far from synagogue, move, <laughs> or start one that's closer to you. But that's not negotiable. That's one of those things that is in the law that we are not able to be flexible about. Now, whether you shave your beard or not, that might be a case, Again, the modern orthodox would say, that's a case of custom and circumstance, and it's not commanded, although the idea of having the payas, the corners of your hair that grow out, that is generally understood to be a commandedness uh, piece, interpreted different ways for different people. The idea of wearing the fringes on the uh, clothing is commanded by uh, to everyone. Um, But the idea of uh, what counts as Shabbat work, again, is something that's universally accepted in the Orthodox world, but more liberal branches has modified it. The idea of doing the services in a chanted format, certainly all in Hebrew, um, is, again, the idea that you do it the way it's been done and the way the rabbis told you to do it. Not translating, not changing. It is what it is. Even if the ideas in the service may be obnoxious to a modern perspective. The idea that God has chosen us from among all the peoples and given us a fate unlike any others and chose us out of all the peoples to give this Torah. If you read the English side of it, you'd be embarrassed. Uh, But their approach is, this is what the ancestors have said, and this is what we're going to do uh, no matter what. Now, when it comes to the idea of a closed society, this is where we get into the varieties of Orthodox Judaism. So I mentioned Hasidic as one style. This evolves in the 18th and 19th century, again, not modern um, and it evolves around charismatic leaders so traditionally you have a sage a rabbi who is subordinate to his sage uh, who trained him and his yeshiva where he studied and the sages that founded that so there's a sort of hierarchical system in the Hasidic world because it's a charismatic <coughs> rabbi who you're following he is the ultimate authority and what that rabbi has told you to do is what you do for everything there's a story that one man says I'm going to hear the rabbi teach a lesson on Torah portion for the week and the other one says I'm going to watch the rabbi tie his shoes. <coughs> I'll learn something from that. Because whatever the rabbi does is important from a Hasidic perspective. Um, now, the Hasidic world initially was sometimes a little more flexible when it came to ritual performance. By the end of the 19th century, they had made a deal with the establishment to say, we're going to be stricter than strict, and uh, we're going to keep our ancestral ways. Now, the irony is that the what we think of as the traditional Hasidic dress of the black clothing and the white shirts Actually, is what the Polish nobility were wearing in the 1600s, and simply got frozen in time when the Kossuth movement said, "Okay, we're not, no more changes." It's sort of like um, the Amish, actually, in that respect, because Amish will ride trains, because those were around in the 1840s when they decided, "We're done. They won't use zippers, but they'll ride trains." Um, so it's whenever you've decided this is the time, that's it. So they decided this is the time, that's the clothing they're going to wear. So that's why you find in some Kossuth sects. In Jerusalem, they're wearing these huge fur hats. Mm-hmm. And you think, no wonder they're crazy. Brains <laughs> the are boiling from, the, from the, uh, the clothing. But it was what their ancestors wore in Poland, based on models of even the outside community. But they froze it in time. They might use cell phones, but they're still going to wear and dress and behave the way their ancestors did, as they understand it. Um, so the Hasidic uh, community is often one of these more closed communities. Certainly the Sadmar Hasidim in New York Williamsburg, our very closed community. Um, The uh, Lubavitchers are a little bit more open in that they have a mandate for outreach. This is also called Chabad, is is the outreach arm of the Lubavitcher-Hasidic world. But once you're in, once they've brought you in to what they want you to do, then they will move you along into a much more uh, Hasidic, very orthodox, even (coughs) ultra-orthodox lifestyle. You'll sometimes hear the word Haredi. Or the Hairedin, that means the ultra Orthodox. It comes from the word for to tremble. Mm-hmm. Literally, like the, the Jewish Quakers, they're so pious that they, they tremble before God. Um, these are the communities you'll see in Jerusalem that are, again, all black hat, um, gender segregated, now even on sidewalks, let alone uh, in, the, in synagogue spaces. Um, they will uh, also uh, find a variety of Orthodoxy called Religious Zionism. Originally, the ultra-Orthodox had nothing to do with Zionism. They thought that was chutzpah. The Messiah comes, he'll rebuild Jerusalem, and then we go. But not before. And all these secular Zionists who are not keeping kosher and not following Shabbat rules and are not listening to us, the rabbis who are telling them what they're doing wrong, well, we can't, live, we can't work with them. But there were some who were Orthodox who nevertheless saw these secular Zionists as fulfilling something positive. For example, when you live in Israel, there are a whole series of commandments that you can fulfill there that you can't do anywhere else. You're supposed to leave the land unplanted every seven years. We, but that only applies to the land of Israel. So for generations, our grandfathers weren't fulfilling that commandment. But now if we move to Israel, we can do that. We can fulfill that commandment one more than 613 that we can earn for points. Um, so there were some who moved into the... Uh, early uh, pre-Israel pre state uh, territory um, and they call themselves religious Zionists and some of them have evolved into what you would, would call now the Messianic Zionists who are part of the Gush Emunim uh, fanatical settler movement actually most of the settlers are not uh, fanatical uh, religious Zionists but some are um, but these are people who do serve in the army in the Israeli army who do generally shave their faces, uh, wear modern clothing and so on but still live an orthodox uh, lifestyle. And then we have the modern orthodox world I described before, anywhere from Yeshiva University to uh, the even more uh, liberal modern orthodox, who are exposed to Western learning and knowledge. Uh, They run a medical school, for example, at Yeshiva University. uh, So you can become an orthodox doctor. Uh, They have to work around the cadaver research because you're not supposed to be touching dead bodies, but they they negotiate that. Um, But at the same time, uh, in the ultra-orthodox world, they wouldn't do that because learning the science is what's, what's trait, what's not kosher for them. It's the outside knowledge that's going to undermine their uh, their value. So the last point I wanted to raise before we open for any last uh, questions or comments is what are the prospects for orthodox Judaism? You hear a lot of people saying that orthodoxy is going to take over everything because the birth rate is so high, because the education is so intense, because the uh, rejection of the outside world is so strong, uh, because the condemnation of Uh, Intermarriage is so high uh, that uh, it's the only only way for Jews to survive. And there are a lot of secularized Jews who give a lot of money to Chabad and other Orthodox organizations because they feel like that's what's going to keep Jews Jewish. And the answer is yes and no, Uh, but at least substantially no. Um, The first is that if you look back to pre-modern Judaism, say the time of Spinoza, (coughs) 99.99% 99.99% of the Jews in the world lived a life according to halacham its commandments. That's what they did. It's what their community told them to do. It's what they had to do. But after all, most non-Jews lived very, very religious lifestyles. I mean, there just weren't a lot of flaming heretics running around, unless they were actually lit on fire by the church. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, They weren't metaphorically flaming heretics. They were literally flaming heretics. Um, it just wasn't very common. Is that
0: where that comes from? I
1: don't know. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't very common. So nowadays, when you ask people uh, in surveys, do you light Shabbat candles? 20%, 25% do that. Do you keep kosher? 20% do that, um, maybe even less. Uh, and even of those who say they keep kosher, it doesn't necessarily clarify do you keep kosher in the house versus keeping kosher out, or vice versa. Uh, people come for their own compromises. But. Mm-hmm. The point is that it's down from 100% or ninety-nine point nine percent to 20%. That's a massive secularization. Uh, even if they identify as conservative or reformed Jews, uh, let alone unaffiliated or secular Jews, um, Jewish life has become secularized in a, in a very important way in stepping away from the sense of commandedness. You have to do it but also even the choices people are making in terms of what kind of ritual behavior they are doing. So you're saying that among the ultra-Orthodox, it's only 20%? No, no, this no. is across the oh, Jew- okay. Jewish population. And so that includes the ultra-Orthodox and the modern Orthodox and everybody else. So they don't represent as big a number as they And it's actually been relatively consistent. And one of the reasons for that is that if you ask people, how were you raised compared to how you identify today, it turns out that about half of the people raised Orthodox don't identify as Orthodox. Now, again, if you're having eight kids, you're still on the positive <laughs> side. Uh, but if you're having three kids and two of the three don't identify as Orthodox, then that community isn't growing. They may identify as Jewish of some variety, but that doesn't mean that they are um, going to be fully supportive of the Orthodox world. In fact, there's a growing phenomenon, primarily based in New York just because of the numbers, called Off the Derech, OTD. This is the opposite of OCD. Um, These are people who say, we're off the path. We're off the halakha. We're off the derech. Uh, We are no longer going to follow the way our ancestors told us to, or the way our parents are demanding that we do. We're not going to live in this insular world. We want to experience movies, and modern culture, and varieties of food, and the ability to question. And sometimes they wind up in a more liberal Jewish denominations. Sometimes they become as fanatically atheist as they were fanatically religious before. and, uh, but they find their own way, and it's outside of these communities. Um, in a couple of weeks, uh, I'm sorry, in a couple of months, um, I'll be doing a book review that's also the book for the book club called Unorthodox by um, a woman named uh, Feldman. I forget her first name now. Um, but she, uh, Deborah Feldman, she left this world. She was raised in this Hasidic world, and uh, she left it. And so this book is a story about some of the challenges she felt living in that world. and. How she wanted to go to the library and to read books in English and in the most insular of them they don't want them to read English because if they only read Yiddish they can only read the books they're told to read and that aren't published by the outside world although even then she found books by Sholem Aleichem and other Yiddish writers that were in Yiddish but even those were skeptical and, uh, and led her astray uh, so we'll be talking about that in March as well uh, looking at this insular uh, world um, and there are even uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews today who reject the modern state of Israel. You may have heard of a group called the Niture Karta. These are a group of people who are anti-Zionist. They're the ones that go to Iran and uh, shake hands with Ahmadinejad because they don't believe in a Jewish state either. Um, they don't necessarily deny the Holocaust happened, but they, uh, they certainly don't support a modern secular state in uh, Israel. Um, in the end, you know, the Orthodox perspective is a very traditional one. God rewards those who obey. God punishes those who don't. And he's even willing to punish those who are complicit in the disobedience of those who don't. All of Israel is responsible one for the other. It doesn't just mean community service and soup kitchens. It means ritual behavior and everything else that could cause divine punishment. So if I see you breaking the law, if I see you exposing your ankle, if I see you eating the wrong food, it is my job to correct you because otherwise it's going to hit me. <laughs> or it's going to hit all of us, but it's certainly going to hit you. So in, in a way, they don't see their imposition of their standards on other Jews as a uh, violation because it's what they're supposed to do. You should not sit idly by and let someone get You don't let someone walk into traffic. Well, I want to save you from the lightning bolt. So I have to intervene and tell you to do what I think God wants you to do. I mean, it creates other kind of interesting uh, conflicts. I'll I'll end with this one. Uh, In Jerusalem, about four years ago, there was a battle over opening a parking garage on Shabbat because there were a lot of tourists who wanted to come and visit the old city. They built this wonderful parking garage. Well, if they open the parking garage, of course, they're taking money on Shabbat, which traditionally you're not supposed to do. So the uh, very orthodox communities in Jerusalem began rioting and burning garbage cans. of creating not, uh, all kinds of havoc, uh, not on Shabbat. Yeah. Um, although, don't try driving down the streets on Shabbat because all of a sudden throwing stones becomes permissible. Um, it's not work. But recreation. it's not work. It's, well, it's recreation. Yeah. It's, it's like <laughs> They have no, they a roof, yeah. so that it's Maybe they're, they're, they're a catapult. <laughs> no, they're not. Uh, anyway, so they were, they were making this big stink over this parking uh, garage in Jerusalem. And then one day, they're about to leave on their you know, their rampage. And they're stopped dead at the end of their neighborhood. Because who, of course, rises and destroys their own neighborhood? Um, someone had taken chalk and written on the sidewalk and on the streets all around the neighborhood the name of God in Hebrew letters.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. And of course, they're not going to step on that. <laughs> and they're sort of milling around wondering, what are we supposed to do? And then out of the sky come these packets of leaflets that hit the ground and spread out. And they're all pornography advertisements. <laughs> and of course, the last thing they want to be doing is seen with these or touch these. So they flee. It's like tear gas. It is just, just disperses and run in all directions. And I thought, I mean, it's some kind of you know, guerrilla theater um, vigilante kind of activity. Um, but I thought this had to be someone who grew up in this world, who knew that this would work. And it was marvelously nonviolent. I mean, in some ways, it's using their Michigas against them. because. All I did was write some chalk on the ground and drop some recyclable paper from this guy. I mean, that, that's it. And no violence and very effective disbursement. Um, now, this would not have worked on a modern Orthodox setting. They would have found a way around it, maybe. Uh, but in the ultra-Orthodox world, this sense of commandedness, this sense of God judging you and watching you, this sense of a covenant you are not able to quit, it is yours and everyone else's. Um, is strong enough that uh, occasionally even they are subject to uh, control by, by using that. So is the garage open for business? Or? I don't know what the, I think they, they capitulated and, uh, and closed it. You'd think they could just do automatic payments. <laughs> it's taking the money. Like even iPass. Right? How do you see these orthodox communities? perceiving secular Jews, do they is like a just as bad as yeah. an non Jew or? Well, they'll refer to they'll say they'll they'll sometimes call the like the soldiers or the uh, policemen that are breaking up their protests as goyim, you know, non Jews or even Nazis. They'll call them non jews you know, Nazis just just for inflammatory purposes. Um, they might in some cases see them as worse. Uh, there was a great uh, quote in an article about a Chabad house in Michigan. Where uh, it wanted to be independent, and the national Chabad wanted to control it, and uh, two of the rabbis who were in this dispute wrote a letter to the state authorities saying, "Our concern is that if it was run by the board itself, it might choose to do things that were uh, contrary to the uh, Chabad perspective, or even, God forbid, conservative. May heaven preserve us. <laughs>
0: like,
1: like that would be, you know, that would be worse than burning it down. Is having mm-hmm. go conservative." So there is definitely a very um, hostile approach to other organized forms of Jewish life, um, and uh, and sometimes it takes very ugly forms. Uh, there was a, a TV ad for the latest campaign uh, that's going to be culminating in an election in about a week and a half. It was on for like three days and then pulled because it was so obnoxious. Um, it's for Shas, which is a Sephardic Orthodox uh, party led by an ultra-Orthodox rabbi. Um, And they had this wedding where there's this tall blonde woman who's speaking half Russian and half Hebrew, uh, mirroring this short, clearly Sephardic uh, Jewish guy. Um, And uh, she says something like, is the fax machine plugged in? And he says, what do I need the fax machine for? They're under the chuppah and everything. She said, well, I need to get my uh, certificate of uh, conversion. And he said, well, you're not Jewish? She said, and then the fax comes through, and it says, she's Jewish? And she says, now I am. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and he's looking at his face like, what? the ad was for shops for this ultra-Orthodox party basically saying, if you don't support us, then then this could be your wedding or your kid's wedding, or who knows what's going to happen. So, I mean, they, they took it down because it's so obnoxious. Um, the, uh, the election... Uh, authorities um, told them they had to take it down because it was racist. Um, But the point is that the perspective on the the secular Jewish world, whether it's the Russian Jewish community in uh, Israel or the secular kibbutzniks or any of the others, uh, they're they're this category, the apichorus, that uh, has no share in the world to come, that uh, you should have nothing to do with because they'll infect you and lead you astray. Um, In some cases, they're very hostile. In other cases, they're like, you're dead to us and uh, we want nothing to do with you. Um, But Again, this is that question of that line in orthodoxy between the Haredi ultra-orthodox and the modern orthodox. Modern orthodox Jews or religious Zionists serve in the army, pay taxes, see it as a legitimate government with legitimate Jewish symbols serving the uh, parliament even. Um, the most ultra-orthodox might have a parliamentary party to represent their interests and to negotiate on their behalf, but they don't recognize any state that isn't based on Torah and Jewish law. I mean, it's, it's hard to make the comparison because they're not as violent, but uh, the most... Islamic fundamentalists who want to impose Sharia law on life um, have some similarities to the ultra-Orthodox who would want to impose their version of Jewish law on all Jews. Um, And whether it's uh, women's dress or education content or any of those other issues, um, not all Jews are as modern as we are used to experiencing them. So Adam, you've talked really more about Know, everything but, actually, service is so it's really about a way of life. Well, right. I mean, the, the point of orthodoxy is the service is consistent with how your everyday life is supposed to be lived, but it's not like you're different. See, so I, I often do the parallel that we are somewhat like the orthodox, in that we are the same person following the same rules, using the same language, no matter where we are. Synagogue, outside, high holidays, regular days, doesn't matter. The orthodox are the same way. If they wear a yarmulke in the synagogue, they wear a yarmulke out of the synagogue. It's not to put it on and then, when you go in, and take it off on the way out you know, from the bin. There's no bins. <laughs> um, I, I was at a family wedding at a conservative synagogue once, and I noticed there was a sign that said, um, make sure to turn off your cell phones on Shabbat. Um, and I thought that they wouldn't need that in an Orthodox synagogue because they wouldn't be carrying their cell phones on Shabbat anyways. And they would no. There would be assumption that you're following these walls not only in the synagogue but everywhere. Um, and uh, I think they also put it in the bathroom because they know people go in there, turn them on to check their email, and then <laughs> have to remember to turn it off when they when they come back up. Um, so it, it really is absolutely a lifestyle that's assumed to be everyday, and also applies to the rabbi as well as the congregation. You know, you get. I remember um, the first year I was here, I went to. uh, We didn't have a morning service for Yom Kippur, so I went out to breakfast at Walker Brothers or something like that. And I mentioned this to someone later, and they said, What if somebody saw you there? And I said, Well, I'd say, What are you doing here? (laughs) 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 The idea that the rabbi would have a different standard than the laity um, is not part of an Orthodox lifestyle, because everyone has to follow this law. The rabbi knows more, is an expert, but. This law applies to everybody all the time. It's not that only the, the rabbi is the designated Jew who has to follow all the rules and does it, and suffers on everyone else's behalf, to, to draw a metaphor from somewhere else. Um, now, the services themselves um, are generally as were prescribed a 1,000 years ago. There have been additions made to it, but you never take away. You can add, but not subtract. Um, you generally have a series of prayers at the beginning, you, uh, often quoting from this book of Psalms, which are a lot of praises of God. You have core pieces of the service, like the Amidah, the standing prayer. Uh, you have a Kaddish, actually, relatively frequently. It's not only for mourning. It's also a, a key part of the service. It's like the separating each section, you have a different version of a Kaddish. Um, you have the Shema. You have the Torah reading. Um, you have the Baruch Hu, which is a series of blessings of God, again. Um, So you have a regular fixed format. It's in an order. In fact, the word for an Orthodox prayer book is a sidur, from the same word as seder, like Passover order. A sidur is the order of prayers, and that's how you're supposed to do it every time. And a sidur will have what you're supposed to say when you're blessing a meal, what you're supposed to say when you wake up in the morning. There's a blessing for leaving the bathroom safely. There are (laughs) blessings for anything.
0: And there's a certain number of blessings you're supposed to say per day,
1: right? There's uh, there's sort of the... uh, uh, colloquial mm-hmm. ideal of, you should say, at least as many a day. And be absurdly yeah. high, like a hundred. Well, it's everything from the bathrooms to everything you eat to seeing a rainbow to seeing someone distinguished in, uh, in a scholarship to mm-hmm. walking mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. a door. <laughs> so the first time I came to our services, I was very confused because I was looking for the book. The big book. Uh-huh. The big book. book. It's it's in it the October reading in the It's not really up front, the way Conservative and reform was sort of styled after the American church, a little bit. And they also just cut down the length of the service. I mean, conservative less so, reform more so. They cut down the length of the service, so you just get you cut to the chase a little bit sooner. (laughs) One of the reasons the conservative services are longer is they do things in Hebrew and in English in some cases, and so that just makes it like painfully long. But are there any Orthodox temples where the Torah reading is in front? I I, I thought early. When I've seen, it's relatively early. It's relatively early, but not look. Think of it this way: needs physical yeah, Needs physical, physical space. Oh, oh I space. think we went in the, the, the schedule. Right. Well, it depends. Again, Ashkenazi and Sephardic. Sephardic style synagogues actually had the beam in the center, um, and many Ashkenazi ones had them at uh, one end, um, usually at the eastern end because it's the direction of Jerusalem, um, and you're supposed to face that. Mm-hmm. But. Um, I, it's uh, it's not automatic based on Orthodox practice as much as the cultural ashkenazic Sephardic uh, distinction. Mm-hmm. It's funny.
0: Yeah. I have a question. What sect are the people that come into the Lego store mm-hmm. with the film
1: with the payas? Mm-hmm. and what? Legos. Legos. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they are dressed in. Well, are they shopping or looking for you? They're shopping, <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, I mean... They are like, definitely shopping. Sometimes what they're shopping for is different. Yeah, Their kids will make people that look just like them yeah, right. and find a hat, hat that, that, fits, that, right. that matches. Well, look... They'll um, um, make a... I mean, you'll see Mennonites and Amish around in, uh, in civilized settings. They are not... Um, they're not like... Um, monks living out in the desert. I understand They that. live in so cities. are they orthodox of a particular sect? They could be any variety. Um, generally, if they're wearing the black hat and the paeus, they're in what's called an ultra-orthodox style. Um, that could be a Hasidic sect. It could be, there's actually non hasidic ultra-orthodox what called Miss Just the hmm. Oh, just the yamaka? Um, and, and all the rest, but just... Well, that could be uh, some variety of modern orthodox. Uh, there's a, something called Young Israel, which might have some people that fit into that category. mean um, you can ask them. <laughs> uh, which sitting I do you that, go to and then, uh, then look at it from there? Yeah. Um, Don't they set so, a special hat? Some have Oscar Khan, some have a I mean, And then that, One you know, <coughs> you know, of right. the sex they are. I mean, generally, you, know, Asian, you can tell by look. Right, and a, a style would probably not be shopping in the LEGO store. Um, <laughs> but uh, someone who's in the one of the ranges of modern orthodoxy would we'll certainly be able to do that. Yeah,
0: Sean. I have two questions. One is, um, I, so, Hasidim mm-hmm. or Hasidic is basically following some kind of charismatic right. rabbi, and it basically is kind of passed down this sort of tradition. Mm-hmm. And that,
1: and also, is there something about Hasidic in terms of the joy, celebrating the joy? How does that differentiate? Right. So the, the title Hasid means, mm-hmm. it's from the word Hasid, which is love. And the idea oh, is oh, that the right. Hasid is so in love with God that he cleaves to God <coughs> simply by emotion. And originally, Christendom was very popular among the less educated uh, people because they couldn't necessarily study Talmud all day and learn all the prayers and all the intricacies. But any position that said, just loving God is enough, that's great for them. There's a story that uh, there was a man who was so illiterate, all he could do was recite the alphabet. But he did it with such fervor that it was counted as if he had read the entire prayer service because it was the emotional Hmm. Connection. Um, so the idea of celebrating your piety through joy, through laughing and dancing, but that's that's a way of showing how much you believe and how happy you are to be the chosen uh, group. Uh, that that became a core part of Hasidic practice. And for the very sober, rigid, you know, follow all the rules strictly um, uh, opponents of the Hasidic movement, this was a problem because the Hasidim, for example, would say, uh, at their most radical you need to be in the right space mentally, spiritually, before you say the prayer. And the strict OCD style would say, if it's time for the prayer, you say the prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can see how there might be a a battle between those two. In the end, the Hasidic world decided to accommodate to the strict, let's get ourselves in the right mood at this time. (laughs) Um, And so there was an accommodation between the two of them in opposition to the more secularizing forces. Um, So today, the line between Hasidic and ultra-Orthodox is hard to see. um, But the laughing, the dancing, the picking up on chairs, all that's very Hasidic. Um, I often make the point that Fiddler on the Roof um, has taken what was one style of Orthodox Judaism and made it universal, such that everyone thinks it's traditional to pick people up on chairs at weddings, Um, when, in fact, it wasn't for German Jews, for uh, northern uh, Polish Jews, for Sephardic Jews. They didn't pick people up on chairs at weddings. But if it was in Fiddler on the Roof, then that's tradition, and therefore <laughs> we all have to do it. And if we're going to spend as much on a bar mitzvah as we would in a wedding, we might as well put someone on a chair, and now it's infected the bar mitzvah too. Right. <laughs> okay. Yes, Jim.
0: I would, um, and I don't know because I wasn't here, but my cousin's son had a bar mitzvah back in November. I was gone, but John went. So, and I think it's cons- conservative? Okay. Between conservative and reform. Why, why
1: are you expected to wear a yarmulke if you're not Jewish? Just out of respect? Well, it's sort of like when you go into a mosque, you take off your shoes. Uh, it's sort of the dress code. Um, and the, I mean, the yarmulke is a very interesting one because technically there's nothing in either written or oral Torah that commands you to wear a head cover. It technically is on the level of minhag, or custom. On the other hand, it's a custom that is so deeply rooted in been Practice for so long that it's assumed that everyone has to do it. Um, I once was at a funeral, it was an interesting family where one part, one of the children was secular, one was Orthodox. Oh, yeah. yeah, and um, the, uh, so I did the funeral home funeral and then the Orthodox rabbi did the graveside. And he said to me afterwards, I noticed your yarmulke blew off, <laughs> which was a way of, you know, yeah giving me the benefit of the doubt, right? <laughs> um, and my response to him was, well, it's not my minhag. It's not my custom to wear the yarmulke, because my my great-grandfather on my mother's side didn't wear one, and my father had never worn one in my lifetime. So um, uh, it sort of really confused him, because the idea that there could be a Jewish community whose minhag was not to wear this uh, was very foreign to him.
0: Well, did um, you leave it at that? or?
1: What was he gonna say? Was he no, at the end of the no funeral? My,
0: because I wasn't there, but John said he, he said, well, I'm not Jewish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the comment was, I'm not exactly sure, back to him, but was that you wear one. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, this is uh, basically it's understood as the dress code. But this is also sometimes used to uh, deny um, non-Jews the chance to be on the Bema, uh, uh, even if it's their child who's having the bar mitzvah. Um, if they can't wear the towels, if they can't wear the clothing with a sense of commandedness, back in the 613, then they can't be up there, um, and it creates sometimes very painful uh, family dynamics when they find that out, like, you know, three weeks before the uh, event. Right. So I always tell wedding couples, where you land is up to you, you'll find the best fit for you. Hopefully it's us, but not guaranteed. Right. Um, but just keep in mind, these are the kind of questions to ask in advance so you don't wind up in a situation like that uh, later on. Right. Sometimes it oh, depends upon... Whose bar mitzvah or
0: whatever you're going to, because Howard was asked by not the person giving the bar mitzvah he must wear yarmulke. He doesn't like to wear the yon-ki. now. He's not now he's not so particular, but at that time definitely. And so he asked the person whose son was being bar mitzvah. It's up to you. You don't have to put it on. Ignore them. Mm-hmm. And they were too, another person that we knew wasn't like some stranger that was telling me how to right.
1: do it. It depends on the community. I, I've said no thank you plenty of times and been able to sit down in the audience. I mean, they, they offer it, and I say no thanks. Um, and they offer it again, and I say no thanks. And then then they have to be really rude to, to push it. Um, it's but sometimes it they do. The it's not that like he was
0: going yeah. out there.
1: Sometimes they do. Yeah.
0: Sorry, Ken. Ken was uh, being paid. i Trying to be nice. So for on Shabbat in, in the Orthodox, um, it seems like you can lump it all as prohibition on modernity or conveniences. Do you know how they reconcile when a modern invention like an electric electric wheelchair? Yeah. that you would need to get to Shabbat, would that
1: be permissible or...? Well, there's always the the compromises of modern life or the conflicts of duties. So um, I mentioned the example of you kill someone to save a life. Um, you can actually break the Shabbat rules to save a life. Uh, you might feel bad doing it. Um, one of our rabbis in Toronto was raised in a Hasidic uh, Orthodox setting, and her father was having terrible pains, and so she took him to the hospital, and he was crying... In the car because he's violating Shabbat, even though he knows he's allowed to do it, he would, you know, he'd prefer not to do it um, strongly. Um, so when it comes to modern conveniences like that, something to facilitate you getting there, I mean, again, they would try to work around it. Let's see if we can get ten or nine other men to come to your house. You can do a prayer service there. You have to have a minion, a quorum of ten men to do certain prayers. I mean, even but even moving around the
0: house if you are bound to an electric wheelchair uh, at that point. I mean, diabetics.
1: They have to have some Right. rights. That's right. right. And again, the goal is as li- violate as little as possible, work within as much as possible. So for example, pregnant women are able to eat they're not required to fast on the fast days. But they shouldn't like gloat it, you know, they shouldn't like you know show up with a pizza <laughs> <laughs> uh, celebrating. The point is that you you try to take it as seriously as possible. If you have to make accommodations for emergency cases, you do, but if the, the most you can work around it, the better. Because again, you're going to get more points for doing it uh, and have less to work off in, in violating it. Um, the timing of the afternoon and evening service in Denmark is is that just more of a modern thing where they're going back to back, they're trying <laughs> to time it perfectly? And, and well, what they it used to be originally, you separate them? There was a little bit more separation. I think the other difference is that um, they'll often define times in a range because again this is pre-digital watch so there wasn't like you know atomic clock precision so let's say you can do this from this time to this time and generally those time windows butt up near each other so they probably do the afternoon service as late as possible in the window and then they do the evening service as early as possible in the window so you've got to break of a few minutes in between and then you can go to the uh, the next one so that's sort of working within the framework. The same thing is true with uh, blessing the new moon. There's a special blessing at the beginning of a month. But what if it's cloudy the first night, you can't see the moon. What if it's cloudy the second night, you can't see the moon. It turns out you can bless the moon up to like uh, almost 14 days into the month. There's a window of doing it. But what that enables you to do is to pick the most convenient time. You know, uh, do it on a weekend. Don't have to do it the first day of the month. Um, so there's a, a range of possibility that, uh, that they probably are working with them. Are holidays based on lunar cycles? You know, when, when does Hanukkah occur? Really? Yeah, I mean, the holidays are based on, um, uh, they're on a Jewish calendar, which is a lunar <coughs> calendar, but it's adjusted to the sun calendar. So you have a leap month, you have a leap month every few years. Uh, out of every 19 years, I think seven of them are leap months, years. So that's why the holidays move a lot. So next year Hanukkah will be uh, the, sorry, this now. This year, this year Hanukkah will be in November, actually, very early. The following year, yeah, the following year it'll be near the end of December because it will have been a leap month added that that year. But they are based on a moon uh, moon cycle months, um, either twenty nine or thirty days because the moon cycle isn't exactly the same, uh, and the uh, the leap month keeps it on season because. Of, a, a calendar without leap months, you'll lose about 10 days a year, and that's what the Muslim calendar does. So Ramadan can shift throughout the year. Anywhere, yeah. right. And those are all rabbinically prescribed in terms of how to do it. There's even a debate, and we'll wind up with this, we be on music. Um, the, at one time, they did it by observation of the moon, and they sent out reports from Jerusalem. We saw the moon, now you can start counting the 15th of the month for Sukkot or Passover. But what if you look too far away? Well, so then they added a second day of the holiday, just in case. But at a certain point, even by the time of the Talmud, they had done the math, and they knew exactly when things were going to happen. And so the question is, why keep doing the second day? Second day of Rosh Hashanah, Second day? The answer was, this is the way we've always done it. (laughs) Our parents did this, and we're going to keep doing it, even if it doesn't mean anything anymore. So you will still find, traditionally, that extra day was for the diaspora, not for Israel you'll still find some ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel who are doing the second day because it's what their ancestors did uh, when they were not in Israel. All right, well, thanks very much. I look forward to seeing you next month.
0: This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken
1: Burke.